this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast with me amit barua your host for this episode by banning women from attending universities and colleges the taliban have proved that their ideological motivations matter more than international opinion in september last year one month after taking power again the taliban banned girls from attending secondary schools in afghanistan in november the taliban banned women from visiting public parks hammams and gymnasiums in december the taliban resumed the practice of public floggings and executions putting their medieval motivations on display yet again many countries and the united nations security council have expressed concern at the taliban decisions banning women from public life but what do these statements amount to can the united nations and other influential countries actually make the taliban change their behavior to discuss these issues i'm joined by onohita mujumdar who is a freelance correspondent based in kabul for 8 years she's a south asian journalist and a former editor of the himal south asian magazine welcome to the in focus podcast onohita Thank you Amit very glad to be here and to discuss this uh, critical issue with you at this point in time So Anuhita what do you think I mean why have the Taliban done th- done this now is it they are cocking a snook at the international community they or do they believe they've consolidated their power enough and they can do whatever really they want to It's a difficult question to answer and I do follow Afghanistan and what's happening there fairly closely even though I l- was last in the country 10 years ago I must point out I left in uh, 2012 but uh, I think people are puzzling over what form of power play this uh, actually is uh, I think uh, when the Taliban came into power this time there were some hopes that they may have learned from last time and would change some parts of their behavior and moral policing but as we've seen steadily and as you have pointed out uh, there's been a steady accretion of uh, restrictions uh, especially regarding women and to add to your list i think something which is perhaps in terms of uh, the quality of lives and really uh, the right to life much more alarming is the taliban's decision to ban women from uh, being employees of ngos and ingos Now in a country like Afghanistan where governance is uh, really minimal at this point in time uh, the population does depend on NGOs and INGOs for delivery of services especially uh, with the aid coming from the international community so when you don't allow afghan women to work in this a huge uh, portion of afghans especially women will be deprived from things like food aid healthcare uh, which are critical at this point in time I think there is some speculation that uh, there is obviously dissension within the Taliban we have been hearing that regularly you know over the year uh, that uh, they have been in power uh, over the two years that they have been in power uh, and uh, I think a way of consolidating hold is to try and become more radical we know not just in Afghanistan but we also see in different uh, parts that uh, Uh, radicalization in the political leadership is a way of consolidating power and the speculation is that this may be one way of doing so uh, by all accounts the taliban do not have 
the appeal within the population that they did uh, when they came to power in 1996. So one of the ways of consolidating power is to go after uh, what you could consider is a vulnerable area. The women's issues are something which do not really get a great deal of support from the general population. Uh, and uh, even in the past, I would say the international community's record on this has been extremely patchy. Uh, so it's a very good issue on which to kind of mobilize and you know uh, come down with a hard hand just to prove that they do indeed exercise power. Uh, that was a long answer to your short question. Sorry. Not at all. So, but Anwita, you know, Afghanistan is the only country in the world, from whatever I can understand, that bans women from education. What does that say about the Taliban? I think uh, when we look at the women's issues, we should also consider the larger perspective because the focus has always been on women and obviously women face the brunt of these kind of restrictions. But in general, I don't think the Taliban is very invested in education, the kind of modern education that we're talking about. Uh, for them, the religious education, I think, is primary. And therefore, they feel that, uh, you know, men, uh, the leaders uh, who would get in leaders of a family, the head of the family would get the education and that would be enough, you know. So the idea that you need a modern education even to make uh, society work, to have governance, uh, that really escapes them. So I think if you look at the condition of education overall, they haven't paid attention to it. And as I was just saying, I think uh, they feel that exercising control through policing women is a good way of asserting themselves. They hardline in them certainly see no role for women uh, outside the home. And uh, even when I was uh, living there, I could sense the outcome of years of that kind of culture because a huge uh, a generation of Afghans, uh, you know, would not have been exposed to any other role for women than that within the home. So what, what's your sense? I mean, uh, you know, we saw, you know, after the Doha Accord of uh, February 2020, uh, we saw literally the U.S. cut and run from Afghanistan, something which they did previously as well. And obviously, you know, they handed over power to a group, uh, you know, which functions by its own code and its own norms. And now when posited with the situation, and as you rightly point out, uh, that, you know, banning women from working, uh, you know, continuing drought and floods, uh, uh, access of people to food and healthcare. There are many issues in Afghanistan, you know, a poor economy, all these issues. So does the international community, if we can call it that, or the Western world or the United States, do they have the stomach to do anything about the situation in Afghanistan? What's your sense after, you know, the eight or 10 years you spent there and you continue to watch Afghanistan even today? I think uh, that... Uh... There are a couple of things here, uh, the American attitude, the Western attitude, and also let's discuss the kind of Taliban's attitude towards all these issues. So as you said, the U.S. did cut and run earlier, as well as in 2020, and not just cut and run, but they enabled, I would say, the return of this particular Taliban 2.0, if you want to call it, to power. And uh, they were able to do so uh, 
with the agreement in which uh, the US, which was clearly the powerful party, agreed to the Taliban's terms that the Afghan government would not be involved in the discussions and therefore delegitimize the Afghan government. Now, the Afghan government has many faults and uh, corruption, lack of governance, power play. There's lots of things. And of course, a lot of them were blamed in 2020 for not being able to uh, keep things together. But I think uh, one must remember that they were sidelined deliberately by Americans and in the talks led by Zalmay Khalilzad um, and kept out of the agreement. So yes, they did hand uh, power over to the Taliban without ascertaining that the Taliban would adhere to any red lines in terms of basic fundamental uh, human rights, universal human rights. In terms of the US and Yes, I think you very rightly kind of questioned the use of the term international. One, I don't think all the Western countries see approach Afghanistan the way America did. America was just extremely uh, overwhelming because of its money and muscle power. I think some Western countries would have had a, have had a longer standing relationship with Afghanistan and might continue to do so. And when we talk about the international community, I at least felt there was a very distinct difference between how the West sees Afghanistan and how we in the region uh, might uh, look at Afghanistan. Uh, The West sees it as something which is, I don't know, like a mutated, uh, you know, country which is living in the medieval ages where you can't really relate to it except through, I don't know, total control But uh, I think when I lived there, I felt there were so many similarities. Things in Afghanistan were extremely acute, but uh, they were part of a larger fabric of lives in our part of the world, in the South Asian uh, region. And I wish much more of that had uh, perspective could could inform, would inform, uh, should inform what our approach uh, to Afghanistan rather than seeing it as a country which is to be won or lost according to strategic goals. And the last is uh, the Taliban. Now, we're talking a lot about the West's influence, but if we look at what the Taliban are doing, they are also seem to be responding largely to the West. In their statements, they address the West. You know, the latest discussions, uh, the Security Council has just now condemned the ban of Afghan women from NGOs and INGOs, and six critical large INGOs have decided to withdraw from Afghanistan. And the Taliban's response to this is that the West should not be telling us how our women should behave. But they they are also not addressing their own citizens and saying, you know, this is how we plan to meet the gap that you will face because of the withdrawal of these NGOs and because your women will not no longer be allowed to work. Some uh, women who live in only women households because the men may have died or migrated or not been there. Um, we, this is what we plan to do to, for your survival. Uh, so we don't see that either. It seems as if they are willing to isolate themselves currently from the international community and uh, and maybe they feel, uh, obviously, the Taliban leaders are not going to be facing starvation or health issues. But uh, maybe they feel that uh, it doesn't really matter what the rest of the population goes through. And, and what is your sense? Uh, I mean, uh, 
you know, earlier we saw the Taliban were keen on getting their frozen uh, resources, financial resources back from the United States. And, you know, of course, uh, we saw in uh, in 96, uh, you know, countries like Pakistan, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, uh, you know, recognize the Taliban. This time we haven't seen any country recognize it. But so many countries are dealing with them. So in, in a sense, uh, you know, recognition or non-recognition, you know, you are engaging the Taliban in one way or the other. So now what is your sense? I mean, is it that the Taliban, uh, you know, you, you, you gave some really good reasons why they may have done what they've done. But so does that mean that they're no longer interested in engaging with the Western world or the regional world in, the, in terms of being able to, you know, fund uh, their regime? A couple of issues there, Amit. One is the money, uh, which is, of course, key to a lot of things. I think uh, a lot of uh, humanitarians have argued that withholding uh, the funds for what, uh, for political reasons, really, is not something that uh, should have been done at a time when Afghanistan w- was facing enormous uh, crises. Um, you know, the government of Afghanistan in 19, 2019, for example, uh, 75% of its budget came from international uh, money. So so in the 20 years of international intervention, a healthy Afghan economy was not built. Now we, one can discuss who is at fault for that. But it, since it was so aid-dependent, since... Uh, the conditions are uh, extremely dire that the money should have been released regardless of uh, who was in power. That is one one point. Um, the money has obviously not been forthcoming. That being said, uh, quite a substantive amount of humanitarian aid has been released and was also used last year to keep people you know, fed in uh, safe shelters. Uh, food, basically, basic food and water was provided to over 20 million Afghans last year. Now, whether that's going to continue is a moot question, and the international uh, humanitarian um, agencies, uh, the UN, are asking for that aid. The Taliban, again, uh, it's difficult to see uh, where they are going with this. Uh, uh, Obviously, they are not getting the money that they hope they would get, but if the humanitarian money also dries up, then they may face a huge uh, crisis on their hands, which could lead to their problems for their own, uh, you know, for their uh, staying in power, really. But they they probably bet on the fact that humanitarian agencies will continue to function uh, one way or the other in the country. So, so you, you know, you made one point about, Anoita, about, uh, you know, a kind of a regional approach or, a, you know, a South Asian view of Afghanistan. And uh, we do know that uh, Afghanistan is, uh, you know, still a part of that dead duck called uh, the South Asian Association of Regional Cooperation or SARC. Uh, what is your sense of how, you know, h- how could have South Asia or how should South Asia approach Afghanistan in the future? Is there a South Asian view that can help Afghanistan or is there an Indian view that can help Afghanistan? What is your sense of that? Can you tell us a little more about what you think on this? I think if we look at something like the women's issues, I think because that is clearly comes to the fore all the time when one talks about Afghanistan, we know that in South Asia, that in India, there are parts of the country where women face a a lot of restrictions within certain communities. And I think in Afghanistan, obviously, it's 
much more acute and widespread. But uh, the issue to look at when we're looking at Afghanistan is how one can see this as a continuity of a certain kind of patriarchy that is in operation across South Asia and address it. Rather than, you know, what uh, what one starts saying is that, oh, these are Western imported rights and that allows the Taliban to respond to it in a certain way. Uh, when I would have conversations with young Afghan uh, men when I was there, and some of them thought these kind of rights were Western-inspired. I would start the conversation by saying, let's forget about the West. Uh, talk to me. I'm your neighbor. You know, I'm I'm in the region. Uh, um, my country faces these kind of issues. So let's start the conversation from there. And that makes it completely different, uh, the conversation, because we're not then looking at the Afghanistan and the West. In terms of the approach, I mean, I think if Afghanistan is imploding, whether in terms of humanitarian crisis or politically, or as may be feared that um, terror eventually is exported from there, uh, I think uh, those who are going to be impacted will would be the region, would be our countries. You know, if Afghanistan has a humanitarian crisis, Iran and Pakistan would have enormous number of refugees on their hands, uh, regardless of how strongly they police the border. Uh, if there are social and political repercussions, we would f uh, feel it in India. So I think it is for the region to really come together and look at uh, how to engage Afghanistan rather than treating Afghanistan as a field of competition, which I th I'm afraid the uh, India and Pakistan have not shown the maturity to come together and come up with a uh, minimum uh, common program on how Afghanistan can be dealt with. Obviously, the uh, countries will not agree on all aspects, but there are some issues on which everybody could collaborate. And uh, that initiative has not happened. I think most of the regional countries are trying to see how they can jump on the bandwagon of a larger international grouping and therefore uh, flex their muscle. I see very little attention to the regional aspect, really. So, Anatha, you know, um, before we end this conversation for today, I just wanted to ask you, you know, when you were living in Kabul, uh, and I remember meeting you there, uh, you know, uh, please tell us, you know, what your life was like, and did you ever think that, you know, uh, that the Taliban would ever come back while you were living in Kabul? I think living in Kabul was um, absolutely uh, fascinating as a journalist, uh, but very difficult as a woman um, for the reasons we have been discussing. Uh, but it was really such a privilege to see a country really being rebuilt brick by brick, literally and metaphorically. You know, you, you saw the structures of power, parliament come into being, the dissensions, the fact that... Uh, America forced a centralized system uh, into the constitution. I was there during those talks uh, and actually seeing things which are really shattered, you know, come into being. It's all, you know, it's all, uh, I went for one of the first musical performances in Kabul after so many years of dead silence. Uh, you saw, you know, young uh, girls, uh, uh, young boys going to school, you could walk into Kabul University on any afternoon and feel like you were, you know, in any part of South Asia with young men and women strolling around. So it really felt like things were going in a certain direction. 
the uh, security situation was definitely on a downward curve i would say uh, up to 2003 4 5 there was still hope that uh, in terms of security things were getting better but uh, from then onwards there was a downward spiral but in terms of civic life there seemed things seemed to be getting better and better so no um at that point there was and i left as i said in 2012 there was little inkling that uh, it would one day be possible for the taliban to come back an interesting uh, figure which um, you know if you look at some of the kind of assessments of afghanistan public opinion which were done on an annual basis by some organizations like the asia foundation and uh, they found uh, found that in tw- 2009 the taliban and allied groups still had quite a bit of widespread support in the population and by 2019 this had diminished so you know you actually saw afghan citizens growing a stake in um, modern democracy uh, and that uh, i guess has must have been the rudest shock to them in uh, 2020 uh, when the taliban took power and which of course led to uh, so many of them trying desperately to leave well before i finally finally let you go i mean we've seen one attempt at you know as you said rebuilding afghanistan brick by brick do you think uh, you know uh, the region south asia and uh, you know other countries do they have the stomach to do it again i don't see anybody having the stomach to do it again largely also because the largest player america is not interested and as i said the region seems to be more interested in strategic issues than really in afghanistan or afghans uh, that being said you know i have a friend uh, uh, who's was uh, till the taliban came to power the president of the uh, red crescent and i was uh, chatting with her the other day on the phone she continues to live in kabul she has made no attempt to leave the country and um she says she understands why so many left but she says the fights have to be fought here they have to be fought by afghans nobody else can make our country for us so i think that that is true uh, unless it is organic and unless there is something which uh, most of the population can grow into i don't see how somebody else can walk in from outside and uh, bestow uh, either democracy or peace or anything else on afghanistan especially in the current circumstances and maybe maybe that will happen after the most recent uh, uh, ban on uh, uh, women's education which was in higher education uh, we saw protests about just about a week ago protests in nangarhar medical university where all the young men uh, protested and uh, i think they boycotted the exams or they did a walkout uh because they said they were standing in support of afghan women's right to education and in the current climate taking an action like this does carry a risk so you know that that's quite incredible that it would happen um in a place like nangarhar especially i've i've seen um, afghan um, you know professor college uh, uh, teachers resigning in protest uh but these are uh, sporadic incidents so we have not seen anything on the large scale so uh, one will have to see what may actually uh, shift the opinion of the population into really uh, taking control of uh, you know their their rights uh, once again onohita mojumdar who follows afghanistan closely 
Thank you so much for talking to the Hindus in Focus podcast. Thank you very much, Amit. Pleasure to be here. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.